Now this morning, we are beginning a new sermon series titled, We Believe, Doctrine for Our Delight. This series will consist of sermons based on our statement of faith for Sovereign Grace Churches. I'm holding a copy of one of these in my hand. And this is a statement of faith that the elders of Sovereign Grace have worked on over a period of seven years. And it is a robust, deep, and worshipful document that um, by God's grace we have put together. So this morning what I wanna do is gonna be more of an introductory sermon. Uh, over the course of this next few months leading up to Christmas, we are basically gonna walk through this entire statement of faith. Um, not in any deep fashion, but at least an overview to uh, grasp what we publicly and corporately confess together as a church. So this morning is gonna be a more of an introductory sermon. Um, and the purpose of this is really how we as pastors hope that the statement of faith would function in our church corporately and in our lives individually. Now, you've probably heard Christians, uh, Christians are really, um, love saying things like this. Uh, just give me Jesus. D don't give me all that doctrine. Or, or you might have heard people say, no creed but the Bible, which in itself is a creed. Or the phrase, doctrine divides. Now, now some of this among us evangelical Christians, uh, uh, it's understandable why we make comments like this, especially because we hold the Bible as our highest authority, right? So adopting some sort of creed or confession can seem like, man, it seems like it could undermine the authority of scripture. So, so Christians, evangelical Christians especially, can be skeptical about that. But ultimately, the Bible is our final authority on all these matters. The real question we have to answer, well, what does the Bible actually teach about the central aspects of our faith? It's one thing to say that this is our highest authority. The next question is, well, what does it say about what is central to our faith? We're gonna see from our text this morning, as well as from church history, looking at creeds and confessions, that statements of faith have played a vital role in explicitly stating what scripture teaches about the central tenets of our faith. So in this introductory sermon, I want to make the case to you that a robust biblical statement of faith is critical to our spiritual nourishment individually and the health of our church corporately. Let me say that again, a robust biblical statement of faith is critical to our spiritual nourishment individually and the health of our church corporately. Now there are several indications in the Old and the New Testament that something like a statement of faith was an important part of the corporate identity of God's people. In the Old Testament, the Shema was a statement of faith for the Jewish people that grounded their identity as the people of God. This is a statement that pious Jews even confess today, and it's found in Deuteronomy. It goes like this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Public, corporate confession of faith. Moving to the New Testament, there's a continuation of this pattern that we see in the writings of Paul. Oftentimes, when you're reading his letters, he makes reference to something like this sayings that are true and trustworthy. 
just early in the letter that you, you guys just opened up to, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15 says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. So there were in the early church sayings that were true and trustworthy that functioned like statements of faith that were binding upon the entire church. Now our focus this morning is on 1 Timothy chapter 3, if you want to turn there, to verses 14 through 16. Chapter 3, verse 14 through 16. This passage here is another example of a statement of faith that was widely accepted in the early church, and Paul wants to remind Timothy of this statement of faith. So let's jump in in verse 14. Paul saying, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, Paul is writing this letter from prison, and his, he has just spent the earlier part of his letter focusing on how believers ought to order their churches and how they must orient their hearts as they come together to worship. Then he describes the church of the living God in this way, a pillar and buttress of truth. In other words, a distinctive mark of a church is one that preserves and proclaims truth. Now, the source of this truth that we're called to preserve and proclaim is not something that we derive from wisdom or human ingenuity, but it's the very words of God that have been revealed to us in Scripture. This is our mission. This is our purpose. This is our commission in the world. So, brothers and sisters, we fulfill our calling as a faithful church to the, de to the degree that we steward our purpose of preserving and proclaiming these truths in the life of our church. So Paul wants Timothy to do exactly that. And in the next verse, in verse 16, he reminds Timothy of a concise statement of faith, a confession that functioned as a means of preserving God's truth in the early church. And now Paul is calling Timothy to preserve and proclaim these truths in his ministry as well. Verse 16, great indeed we confess, a confession, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Now, there are six theologically rich statements in this confession. So let's consider them briefly together. First, talking about Jesus here, he was manifested in the flesh. This statement does two things. It explicitly references the incarnation of Jesus Christ, God becoming man, and it implicitly alludes to the fact that Jesus once existed eternally the pre-existence of Christ. The one true God who existed eternally at one point in history took on flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This God who is above all, eternal in power and glory, took on flesh 
and died the death on behalf of his people so that their sins could be forgiven. Jesus was manifested in the flesh. Second, he was vindicated by the Spirit. This statement affirms that Jesus' resurrection from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit was on the third day, was in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. In other words, the Holy Spirit confirmed and proved that Jesus was God's own son and the savior of the world when he raised Jesus from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead vindicated the claims of Jesus as being the son of God and was an affirmation that everything Jesus said was true, including the reality that he alone is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. Third, he was seen by angels. This statement is an affirmation that the ascension of Jesus into heaven after his resurrection was witnessed by a host of angels. Even though angels are not recipients of God's redeeming grace, angels still look at redemption and they marvel at God's mercy towards sinful humans. And they marvel at the powerful victory that Jesus purchased on the cross over sin, death, and Satan. Fourth, he was proclaimed among the nations. Now this statement affirms the true gospel of the life, death, and resurrection was no longer confined to just the Jews, but now it was to be proclaimed among the peoples of every tribe, tongue, and nation. Fifth, he was believed on in the world. This statement affirms that the gospel proclamation resulted in a harvest of souls from among the Gentiles coming to faith in Christ, as we read about in the book of Acts. Finally, sixth, he was taken up in glory. This is the affirmation that Jesus, who was fully God and fully man, was exalted to the right hand of the Father from where he rules and reigns over all creation. These six statements, rich in doctrinal truth, and many scholars believe that this confession was a precursor to the early to the more expansive Apostles' Creed that was developed much later. So I hope you can see that confessions of faith were used in the Old Testament, in the New Testament. And this morning, I wanna share five ways in which we desire the statement of faith to function in our life, in the life of our church locally here as pastors. So five reasons why I think the statement of faith is important in five ways I hope this sermon series will function in the life of your, our church corporately. Number one, this statement of faith grounds our church historically. Now our faith is deeply rooted in history and it's passed down from generation to generation. Just like Timothy learned the faith from his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice, so our common faith that we confess has been confessed by generations upon generations, even until this day. Now, throughout the centuries, the church has expressed the central truths of our faith through creeds and confessions. With just within the first few centuries of the church, the concept of an ecumenical council arose, similar to the Jerusalem council that we read about in the book of Acts. These ecumenical councils were a gathering of church leaders to make decisions that were binding on the whole church. 
So the early creeds formed at Nicaea and Constantinople and Chalcedon and Ephesus, they fleshed out the central doctrines of our faith concerning the nature of God, of Christ, the Holy Spirit, the doctrines of salvation and final judgment. Then there are the great confessions of faith in the 16th through 18th centuries, the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Belgic Confession, the Heidelberg Confession. Our statement of faith is rooted in scripture but it is also consistent with all these great creeds and confessions of the church. So this statement of faith ought to ground us historically. What it also does is it reminds us that doctrines that are new and novel are to be seen as suspect and damaging to the life and health of the church. Number two, our statement of faith can function to unite our church locally. Now, the deepest and most profound realities about God, that's what we confess in this statement of faith. Our existence, our purpose, our redemption, our future hope have all been redeemed, revealed to us in God's word. And this statement of faith acts as a way to unite us around what is clear and central to, the, to scripture. Now, there is a deep unity that can be experienced by a church when the foundation of our unity is based upon what is revealed in Scripture and what is clear in Scripture. Now, there's a lot of things that we disagree on, right? There's a lot of things that we disagree on. We might disagree on what economic policy is best. We might disagree on who to vote in the next election. We might disagree on models and philosophies of ministry. We might disagree on parenting techniques and philosophies. There's a lot. And it seems like sometimes those things end up defining us and can sometimes create a chasm between our relationships, even within this church. But brothers and sisters, I wanna, I wanna commend to you that there, there's more that we agree on than we disagree on. And a lot of what we agree on are things of eternal significance. And a lot of what we agree on has been distilled down in this statement of faith. And I pray that these things that we are gonna talk about over these next few months ought to create a bond of peace among us as brothers and sisters that is unshakable and unbreakable in spite of the things that we disagree on. Number three, a statement of faith protects us from false teaching. Now, the early creeds in the church, they were developed in the face of controversy within the church. And there was a desire to protect the church from false teaching. It was a controversy of Arianism that denied the full deity of Christ that required the Nicene Creed. And the full divinity and the full humanity of Christ, the deity of the Holy Spirit were all guarded and protected through the next several church councils. And, and False teaching, and sometimes we think false teaching kind of crept into the church like hundreds of years later, you know, after the death of the apostles. But if you read the letters of Paul and Peter and John, they are constantly dealing with false teachers, constantly dealing with false teaching. And even in this letter, Paul is eager for Timothy to continue to teach sound doctrine. Because if you read the following verses, we're not really going to get into this, but Paul warns that days are ahead when people will not want sound teaching and that will instead be lured 
they will not want sound teaching. Did I say that right? And they will instead be lured away by false teaching. Now, there are many areas in our world where we see people, even professing Christians, accumulating for themselves false teachers. Whether it is those that are preaching the prosperity gospel who corrupt the nature of God in the gospel, or whether it is our culture pressing into our churches, trying to redefine gender and sexuality and marriage. We can see our culture is speeding into an abyss by disregarding God's clear design for human flourishing. And friends, to be honest, there are going to be days not far ahead where we might be persecuted for confessing these truths together. But our statement of faith protects us from the ignorance of these evils, from the ignorance of these false teachings, and it even equips us to fight against these errors. Number four, our statement of faith also enables us to live godly lives. I know this might sound a bit odd at first, uh, but, but Paul and even the New Testament often uses the word doctrine not only to talk about the things we believe about God and the gospel, but also things we believe about how we ought to live. Our lives, our actions reveal if we believe in sound doctrine. Just later in this letter, Paul says this in chapter six, verse three. If anyone teaches a different doctrine that does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Now notice the two aspects of how different doctrine is defined in this verse. First, it does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is a central marker of sound doctrine. What someone believes about the person and work of Jesus Christ. False religions either deny his deity or his humanity, his substitutionary atonement or his resurrection from the dead and many other things. But there's a second part to what Paul calls different doctrine here. He says the teaching that accords with godliness. So sound doctrine not only shows us what we ought to believe about God, it tells us from scripture how we ought to live in a manner that's pleasing to God. This is why our statement of faith tells us from scripture how we ought to conduct our lives. It shows us what God expects from us in marriage and singleness and parenting, how the church ought to be governed, how we should grow in the knowledge of God, how we should obey Christ's commands, walk by the spirit, mortify sin and pursue God's priorities and purposes in our lives. So I hope this statement of faith will help us do to that end. Fifth and finally, our statement of faith can and must evoke our delight in God. We have titled this sermon series, We Believe Doctrine for Our Delight Intentionally. Sound doctrine ought to ultimately lead us to worship God deeply. There's a direct connection between growing in the knowledge of God and growing in delighting in God. As we increase in the knowledge of God and his ways revealed in scripture, we can increase in our enjoyment and delight in God. John Piper says this, thinking about God, reasoning about God, knowing God is a necessary means and delighting in God 
treasuring God, enjoying God is the ultimate end of the human souls. We were created to enjoy fellowship with the triune God. This is the ultimate end of our existence. And God has given us the ability to think and to reason so that we might delight and treasure and enjoy God as the deepest fountain of our satisfaction. David Mathis says this, doctrine is for the sake of delight. Christian theology does not exist for its own sake, but for our desiring and enjoying Christ. Simply put, the mind is meant to serve the heart. Thinking serves feeling. God gave us the ability to learn and reason so that we might admire and treasure him above anything else. Right thinking is for deep feeling. Now, I want to be careful here and make it clear that there's a difference between personal, intimate knowledge of God applied to our hearts by the Holy Spirit and academic knowledge that you might have about God. A little knowledge of God is worth more than a great deal of knowledge about God. Now, Paul was a theological giant, a brilliant mind, and you read his letters and they are filled with deep insight about who God is, what he has done to redeem a people for himself. But if you notice his letters, Paul often bursts out in praise after explaining something about God and his ways. Consider his letter to the Romans, probably the deepest treatment of the gospel in the first 11 chapters of the book. And then when he gets to the end of recounting God's glorious work through Christ, Paul can't contain himself. In Romans 11:33, he says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Does your theology cause you to burst out in praise, in delight, in adoration? I pray that it does. But increasing in the knowledge of God does not automatically increase our delight in God. <laughs> I wish it was that easy, but we need the Holy Spirit to open our eyes, to cause our callous hearts to rejoice, cherish, and adore, and delight in God. So I'm praying, and you be praying as well, that as we go through this series, that the Holy Spirit would be at work in our hearts to cause us to delight in God. Let me just leave you with two guiding questions during this sermon series that I hope will be helpful. Number one, are you growing in the knowledge of God? Are you growing in the knowledge of God? As I mentioned earlier, right thinking is a necessary means by which we ought to worship God. Jesus himself says that we ought to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. I know that there's going to be some here that are more inclined to be heady and to, to think about theology, and that's okay. But I want to encourage each of you, and us as a church corporately, 
to sharpen our thinking, to grow in the knowledge of God, to grow in the knowledge of Scripture together, to be able to explain why we believe what we believe. Brothers and sisters, I am sure this will ground your faith more than anything when trials and testing comes our way. Now, there might be some here who are prone to apathy, and we all are at different times. You might be satisfied with the bare minimum knowledge of God, and there's really not much of a desire to grow in the knowledge of God. I just want to admonish you. You are in danger of being tossed to and fro by every wave and wind of doctrine. That's a warning in Scripture. And you are also missing out on the depth of delight that awaits you as you grow in the knowledge of God and His ways. So we here at Sovereign Grace Church Dayton, we desire to be a people, a church that is rooted in growing in sound doctrine. So let me encourage you during this sermon series, ask questions. This isn't just for the kids. This is for all of us. We're all learning together. Ask questions about things that don't make sense, that aren't clear. Ask the pastors. Discuss with one another. Clarify your thinking on these matters. Research on your own. You can bring your Statement of Faith books with you every week for the next few months. I think I have a few left over here. If you come up to me, I'll give it to you for free. But you can also go on our website, sgcdayton.org, and find a link to it and read it digitally. Brothers and sisters, we have not arrived. No, No one gets a degree and gets to the end of the knowledge of God. God is infinite. So let's learn together and grow in the knowledge of God. Number two, are you growing in loving God and people? Paul reminds us in his letter to the Corinthians that growing in knowledge can potentially cause us to puff up. But growing in love helps us build others up. Now, this is not contradictory to the previous point, but is the other side of the ditch. We can grow in immense knowledge about God and his ways for all the wrong reasons. The devil wants to turn our knowledge of God into pride, into getting us to think that we are better, smarter, more intellectual than others. That's why we need the work of the Spirit. The work of the Spirit enables us to use that knowledge for the sake of love, for building others up for their encouragement, for their benefit. Friends, we cannot just be content with being theologically precise. Our witness to one another and to the world must be rooted in love, or else our lack of love becomes a stumbling block to others. We are all on a journey and we are all learning together. So let's be patient with one another as we wrestle through some of these doctrines. And let's always be looking for ways to serve others with the knowledge that we are growing in instead of our ego. So I hope that these two guiding questions can help us as we approach this sermon series with eager expectation of what the Lord would do among us.